You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Tuesday, May 26th, 2020, just after market close here in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm going to be joined shortly by managing editor Ed Harrison. But first, Jack Farley with the latest market news. Thanks, Ash. I know you and Ed have a lot of thoughts about China, the relationship between China and the United States, and the possibility of a new Cold War. I want to zoom in on China by looking at a historic event within a niche asset class there, convertible bonds. There's a lot of action going on. A hybrid fixed income security that gives investors the option to turn debt into shares if they reach a certain level. Convertible bonds have been on an unprecedented boom in China. Chinese companies have rushed in to secure the cheap financing. In 2019, Chinese borrowers raised $55 billion in convertible bonds, the same amount that was raised in 2017 and 2018 combined. Investors' zeal for Chinese converts only heightened as COVID-19 spread in Wuhan and throughout China. The bull market accelerated and issuance has showed no sign of slowing. On May 13th, issuance for the month had already swelled to $1.68 billion, the first time that monthly issuance for Chinese converts had passed $1 billion since September of last year. Now, there are many possible reasons for this. One is that investors moved to de-risk their holdings, so they sold their stocks off in January and moved to what seemed like safer ground. In addition, convertible bonds become especially attractive in times of volatility because as a hybrid asset class, they seem to give investors the best of both worlds, offering the safety of fixed income, as well as a taste of that equity capital if the stock hits a certain level or a premium above par. And then on the supply side, companies had lowered that conversion premium to artificially low levels. That conversion premium normally stands at 20 or 30%, but in China, it had got as low as 8%, so that borrowers could entice investors to come to the table. As a result, Chinese CBs converted at a remarkable frequency. What is quite rare in the U.S. occurred with up to 90% frequency, according to Guotai Junan Securities. And there's a reason that investors have been flocking to CBs. They've done very well for investors. If you look at this chart, about 75% of all Chinese convertible bonds that reach maturity Uh, were liquidated at 130% of the principal amount, so quite good for investors. But the party may soon be over. A note issued by Jiangsu Huifeng Bioagriculture is set to default, marking the first convertible bond default in the history of Chinese markets. This convertible bond was suspended from trading in late April, and it won't resume trading unless Huifeng posts a profit for 2020, which it hasn't managed to do in 2018 or 2019. To make matters worse, a repurchase clause could force Huifeng to buy back the convertible bond if the underlying equity remains below 5.4 yuan until June 5th, which it has for over a year and a half. Huifeng has repeatedly warned that it doesn't have enough money to do this, substantially increasing the risk of default. 
Interestingly, the instrument was rated AA by Chinese credit rating agency Peng Yuan, despite it getting a D from China Knowledge. It should be noted that D is the lowest rating. So we're looking at a historic event within the Chinese convertible bond market. Huifeng has until June 5th to allay fears of insolvency. The world is watching. Analysts are already warning that low-rated convertible bond issuers will experience similar credit risks to Huifeng. Meanwhile, Chinese CBs have hit choppy waters over the past two weeks. And with that, let's go back to Ash and Ed. Welcome, Ed. How are you doing? I'm doing well, actually. Uh, yeah, I, I, actually, let me be honest. I'm uh, I'm a little fatigued from uh, doing a lot of uh, cycling over the weekend. But uh, other than that, I'm doing really well. I'm a little fatigued from eating carbs. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ed, let's jump right to it. What are you looking at? Well, I'm looking at the the market, to be honest with you, the first and foremost, because it was up. Uh, I saw the Dow was up 500 percent. Markets were up. Generally speaking, uh, we, we were at the S&P. We closed above the 3000 level. So that's well above this Fibonacci retracement that we're talking about at 61.8. So we've uh, met the resistance at those levels and now we're headed higher. And really what this is all due to is, is what I was talking about a few weeks ago is the reopening. I said the reopening would be positive for Europe. I really hadn't expected the US to open as quickly as it had done, but it has reopened almost as quickly as Europe. So you're getting a generalized bounce in terms of shares at this particular juncture. Uh, we haven't yet discounted what the future holds, but there's the bounce that we should have expected as a result of the reopening. And then we'll see what what happens later. The thing that's on my mind as the bounce happens is uh, also what's going on with China, because that was what was feeding some of the negativity at the end of last week. And for me, that's more of a longer term issue than the reopening is at this point. Yeah, Dow up, uh, I think you meant to say over 500 points, uh, yeah. not 500%, up over 2% on the day. Uh, S&P briefly crossed above the 3,000 level uh, to close at the 2991 level. That was up about 1% on the day. Some interesting points you mentioned on the retracement level. We're up about uh, 66% now from that, uh, from, that, uh, from that March 23 intraday low of 2191. Right. And so I think that, uh, you know, that's great in terms of the markets over the near term, but really we've got to be looking over the uh, the medium to long term. And there are a lot of headwinds there, uh, certainly in terms of the economy, the market's discounting some of those at the point at this particular juncture. But as I was saying earlier, I'm more concerned about other things on the horizon, and that includes China. I think that the China story is a lot bigger than the markets are making them out to be. It only discounted them for a little bit uh, for one day. For instance, today we, we heard news that China was going to improve more American imports. That's what the US Trade Office says, that's positive. But when you really peel back the onion, you see a lot of headwinds, which would suggest to me a new Cold War is brewing. We're in the middle of a new Cold War, China versus the United States. Yeah, and precisely that point, Ed, you did a true deep dive uh, today in credit write downs where you did uh, some really terrific analysis and also cited uh, some really great articles, uh, some from the South China Morning Post uh, that people here in the U.S. might not otherwise uh, have seen. So what yeah, are your- I think the South China Morning Post does a great job of looking at this. And, you know, right before we came on camera, we were talking about this. It's a Hong Kong based newspaper. And it's interesting because a lot of the, you know, just from a political perspective, 
a lot of what people are thinking about is Hong Kong in particular. Will the South China Morning Post be as open, able to be as open in terms of talking about the issues as it has been uh, when we get a new regime in Hong Kong as a result of China cracking down? That will be very interesting. But you know, I looked at uh, my feed from um, South China Morning Post. I saw something that uh, that was very interesting. Let's look at it this way. China in 2017, it just came out, the World Bank says that from the data used in 2017, China overtook the U.S. as the number one uh, in buying power in the world. It's still clinging at the same time to its developing market status. It wants the National Statistics Agency insists that China should not be measured alongside developed countries like the U.S. So they're trying to have it both ways. The U.S. doesn't want to have let China have it both ways, and it sees China as a an emerging threat as a result of that. For example, just today, one of the headlines uh, that the China uh, South China Morning Post was uh, talking about was from Friday, where the U.S. Senate passed a bill to boost oversight and delist Chinese com- companies from exchanges because they are looking at these companies as potentially fraudulent. Uh, that uh, they are uh, a threat to national security, things of that nature. So this is where we're headed going forward. Another article in the South China Morning Post talked about uh, TSMC, which is a Taiwanese chip maker. They're stopping new Huawei orders because of U.S. restrictions. The U.S. has said you cannot uh, use U.S. components in Huawei parts and if that's the case, and you use Huawei parts in your 5G network or whatever it might be, then you're violating U.S. law because those are U.S. parts uh, that are a part of that. And therefore, we can sanction you. So these are the kinds of things that are, are coming going forward. Right. You know, I'm struck by a couple of things listening to that analysis. Uh, the first is just how complicated this issue is and how many moving parts there are. You know, as reporters, we're not experts in any one given area. We do a lot of reading. We do a lot of research. And the amazing thing that I find when I peel the onion back and uh, with the China story is I'm just reminded of how much I don't know. You know, for example, you sent me a, a, a or sent out rather this morning uh, with Credit Write-Downs, a terrific Reuters article that did a deep dive into this and thinking about the, the Cold War analogy or metaphor or framework. And, uh, you know, there were references to the to the George Kennan telegram and uh, the Nokov telegram and all of this sort of deep statecraft type of stuff. And then there's the technology issue, which, as you point out, is a very much a supply chain issue. It's very much about 5G. It's about the future of who is going to control networks. It's about who's going to run things like uh, the next generation SWIFT system, uh, you know, payment systems, all of these very elaborate technical issues. And then, of course, there's an incredibly complicated uh, military story there as well, uh, especially uh, in the uh, South China Sea, uh, in, in and around the Strait of Malacca. I mean, these are incredibly, incredibly complicated issues. The second thing I was thinking was when you pointed out the story about uh, how China overtook the U.S. Uh, in uh, in aggregate buying power. I was thinking over the weekend, one of the things that I did was I sat on the sofa, fired up my Roku and watched uh, or rewatched, I should say, uh, Rao's interview with Kyle Bass. Uh, and Kyle's point is that uh, the, uh, the Chinese currency is overvalued uh, perhaps as much as 50%, and that when we look at those aggregate economic figures, that we should perhaps take them with a grain of salt. Now, Kyle definitely has an opinion uh, about 
the uh, about the region and uh, about the leadership. But he's so compelling uh, in the framework of the case that he lays out in that piece, uh, in the way that he looks at a series of hard data points that may be subject to different interpretations. But he surfaces the actual facts in, I think, a way that is extremely interesting. Yeah, it's good for you to uh, look back at some of the content here in Real Vision about China, because there's a lot. Uh, Leland Miller uh, from China Beige Book comes to mind, another piece that would be interesting if people want to get a deeper dive into China. I would say that, you know, the World Bank is using purchasing power parity. So that takes away a little bit of the exchange rate value that that Kyle was talking about. But when you when you sort of peel back the onion, let me there were four articles that I was looking at in particular that sort of uh, was I was thinking about as I put together the piece on credit write downs. The first was from early May. There was an article in Reuters about uh, the Chinese, what they were doing because they felt that they had they faced a global backlash. They, uh, the, there was a Chinese report that came out and it was warning that because of the coronavirus, people were starting to look at China differently. China was not forthcoming with regard to their case count. They still have probably undercounted. They didn't tell the rest of the world what was going on. And so people look at China as having uh, caused this to a degree uh, in terms of catching other countries out, making them flat footed in their response. And the the result has been a, a drastic change in the way that people are starting to look at China, not just in terms of the health care side of things, but also in terms of the economic side of things. A second article was from the Globe and Mail. This was from this past Friday. It was saying that in China, in, in Canada, the tide of opinion is turning against China, that they're looking at China in the exact same way that the United States is looking at China. And then finally, China in a Bloomberg article was warning U.S. politicians about this Cold War. What I found the most interesting, however, was the South China Morning Post saying that the Chinese, they recognize all of this stuff. All, they recognize that uh, you know, the U.S., China, uh, U.S., Canada, other countries are looking at China at, in a different way. And as a result of that, uh, they're doing their new five-year plan to decouple the new 2021-2025 Chinese five-year plan is not going to be uh, something that has these growth targets that are based upon uh, you know, exports. They're really going to uh, go towards a domestic-driven economy. They're going to decouple themselves from the West. And this is what's going to drive their 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 uh, global, their geopolitical ambitions, no longer dependent upon the West. I think it's a very interesting story. And I think that it's significant in terms of what sort of blowback we could get from sanctions, from any sort of uh, uh, weapons that the United States could use against China in the coming days. Yeah, I read all of those pieces and they were all, I thought, extremely interesting in, in the analysis. Uh, you know, I was struck by the, the Bloomberg piece, especially by the lead on that piece. It's very clear that, you know, China is a rising world superpower and they are very much aware of that and flexing their muscle in the diplomatic posture that they're taking and the statements that they're making publicly. You know, when I read the uh, five-year plan piece that you uh, you sent in credit write-downs, I always have the same reaction to five-year plans, which is my instinctive desire to say, Gosh, I wish the United States had a five-year plan on things like infrastructure, uh, technology, uh, broadband, uh, energy. Not necessarily, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of central coordination, but just to provide some kind of strategic guidance for how 
the free market can best find solutions to uh, line up with what is in the long-term interest of the United States uh, as a nation state. Uh, so I'm always, um, I'm always, that's my, always my first reaction, but yeah, look, China is, has been playing the long game now for, uh, well, it's their, it's their fifth, uh, uh, it's their 14th five-year plan. So, you know, there's the number and it's, it's a very long time and it's been slow progress, uh, in a way that we generally don't think in the United States. Uh, you know, I think that, um, the dynamism of markets definitely is uh, something that I know you and I both believe in incredibly deeply. But it would be great to have some level of, uh, of of planning and thought behind some of our policies as well. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh, we, we we rely on the markets and the Chinese. They're a more centrally planned economy, yeah. and so they can use that as a as a weapon, as a tool to you know uh, it boost their economy over the longer term in the places that they want to boost it. So right. what the Trump administration uh, has said, actually, the Trump administration came out today saying it's willing to pay for the U for U.S. companies to uproot their supply chains and bring yep. them home uh, to China. This is what uh, Fox News sources are saying. So actually, the United States, it does have a plan. That is, is if we're going to have a recession uh, and we need to spend money. Well, let's spend it on actually uh, bringing supply chains back to the United States. That's what the Trump administration is saying. And yes. let's think about how this works from a Chinese perspective as well, using Huawei, because I thought it was very interesting. Uh, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald about a year and a half ago did a, a piece about how this whole Five Eyes thing happened in terms of Huawei being the enemy of the state for the United States and for other Anglo-American companies. It for, was for those who aren't familiar, Ed, with the, with the Five Eyes intelligence sharing agreement, could you just give a little bit of a primer on that? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, Canada, and the US. And the the intelligence agencies within those organizations within those com countries they uh they communicate with one another and they're called the five eyes because they're looking globally at uh national security interests national security threats uh in a collective way and so they're exchanging information back and forth and what they ascertained at some point got to the point where Malcolm Turnbull, who was the PM in Australia back in February 2018, he was so alarmed at Huawei that he was actually lobbying to, to strip Huawei out of 5G networks in Australia. Eventually, that led in November to New Zealand uh, doing the same thing. It led directly to the imprisonment, if you remember, in Canada of a Huawei executive. And six days later, the UK said that they were going to review Huawei in their 5G networks as well. And this whole thing escalated. Eventually, uh, it was on the back burner. Uh, COVID took over. But now the UK is, is reinvestigating Huawei. And likely what's going to happen, I believe, is, is that they're going to block Huawei from their uh, their supply chains. So you have that on the Chinese side. This is what's happening to the Chinese. And on the other side, you have Trump saying, yes, we are going to actually pay the US government to strip out uh, Huawei and other countries, uh, companies like that out of the supply chains of US companies. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, you, what you said about how incredibly uh, important a story this was that sort of got pushed on the back burner and is very likely to come back because it touches on all of those points. Uh, it's intelligence, it's uh, national security, it's technology, 
and its economics. So it's really one of those stories that did just a perfect storm of all of these uh, issues with China converging. You know, I should say, of course, on balance, I'm a, a, a fan of our system uh, first and foremost. Uh, but it is interesting to see the Trump administration beginning to, I, I wouldn't use the word central planning, but think about a strategic vision. Uh, look, I'm I'm all for globalization. I love free trade. I love, uh, I love open borders. I love the exchange of ideas and capital and, and labor. Uh, but the reality is that these are some very sensitive uh, technologies. And um, if uh, one country is going to be setting the standards, uh, you know, as an American, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense that uh, that it would be U.S. companies who exhibit leadership, of course, uh, in uh, in engineering and have uh, for decades in, in the telecom space. Uh, so there's no reason that we can't do it. So it's it seems to me, at least, like a step in the right direction. What are your thoughts on that, Ed? Well, you know, I think that it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning with regard to the World Bank designating that, you know, on a purchasing power parity basis, China was number one. So, I mean, now it's clear that uh, there's a there's a rivalry there and there's an incompatibility in the systems in terms of the central planning that you were talking about versus the lack of central planning, the freedom that we're talking about globalization. And so I think that we've come to the point now, especially in the post-COVID-19 era, where China is seen as opaque and, uh, and authoritarian. Uh, you know, you just had sanctions on uh, a m number of countries because of the Uyghurs, uh, the human rights abuses there. So uh, the result is, is, is that I think that people are looking at China in a different way. And right. so, you know, people are going to start to take sides. And and there are two outcomes as a result of that. One, I think, is there's increasing number of uh, there's an increasing amount of friction, economic friction, because of those integrated supply chains. This isn't like the Soviet Union, which was complete a completely separate system. Right. China's totally integrated, so you can't have the same level of global growth that you had beforehand if you are trying to strip out. Uh, China from these supply chains. That's going to lower growth, even if you have a transfer payment from government like you do with the Trump administration saying that's what they want to do. So that's negative for shares and other risk assets over the long term. Uh, the second thing I think is that people are going to have to choose sides. I think there was an interesting article yet again in the South China Morning Post talking about Africa in particular, that uh, why don't we have Africa use Africa to diversify supply chains, use those countries uh, instead of the Chinese? You can get lower uh, cost labor there. Uh, and, and that would be a great way. I would say two things on that. One is that that's I don't think that's really feasible on some level because of infrastructure, which China has and Africa doesn't. But secondly, the, the Africans and also the Latin Americans have huge amounts of natural resources. So really, I'm looking at it more in terms of whose side are they going to be on? We know whose side the five eyes are going to be on. We know whose side the Japanese are going to be on and the Europeans. But where are the emerging markets going to go? I think that's where uh, the rubber hits the road in terms of this whole bifurcation that is now beginning to, to play out in terms of a new Cold War. Well, you know, those are such those are such good points. Um, you know, um, 
the the first thing that I think you said that is so incredibly important uh, is the notion that uh, unlike the uh, the U.S. Soviet Cold War, this is we're competing with uh, a country uh, in China that is very much embedded within the framework of global trade uh, and very much embedded within the framework of global technology, which is increasingly becoming more important as we go forward. You know, it's interesting when you talk about Africa. I think about the the old Cold War designation of uh, of non-aligned countries, right? That this is right. The, yeah, that the world is being fragmented uh, into two poles with a with a third world trapped uh, in the center. I think you're absolutely right in terms of supply chains. They are, don't have the, uh, you know, a, a CLEMS multi-factor productivity basis. They're not going to be able to compete with the U.S. and China because of, you know, a series of structural constraints, at least today. And that may, over the decades to come, uh, be uh, become more competitive in that range. But I think in an even bigger sense, you know, when you when you when you when you lay out the broader argument, it becomes very clear that the United States had a very good century, ending with, uh, you know, beginning with the the cult, the end of the of the First uh, World War, uh, and ending uh, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, let's say. And I think China is very much aware of how the United States did it. U.S. power uh, was always strongest and most effective when it was embedded in a global leadership role in uh, in 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 multinational uh, organizations, uh, things like NATO, um, the World Bank. Uh, the IMF, where it took a leadership role, all of these multinational institutions, uh, and and uh, on the security side, and also increasingly now, again, we find ourselves saying this uh, repeatedly on the technology side, the ability to control things like uh, standards through uh, DARPA with TCP/IP, uh, and um, and uh, even more prosaic things like uh, the IEEE writing the standards for engineering. This is not something that the United States can take for granted any longer, uh, that it will have a role of global primacy. And um, I am certain that the Chinese have studied very closely the success that we had over the past century and is now looking to emulate it with their own institutions uh, and uh, and their own standards bodies uh, and their own you know multinational security agreements. It is a very right. tricky situation. It really is. And I think that, you know, then you have to ask yourself from a Chinese perspective, what does that mean for growth? Also, what does it mean uh, in terms of growth for us and, and stocks? I mean, the Chinese uh, have already said their 6% growth target, it's gone. I think that given the fact that they're headed for this 14th uh, uh, five-year plan, that it's gone for good, that they're now, they're using this as an excuse to move to a new paradigm where they don't have that 6% number. To the degree that they want to get anywhere close to that 6% number in the future, they're going to need the likes of the Africans and the Latin Americans in order to source their raw materials. So they'll want to get them on side. So when you were talking about DARPA, you were talking about IEEE, you were talking about TCPIP and all these other protocols, et cetera, the Chinese, uh, you know, they're going to get these people on side, use their technology, et cetera. And I think that, you know, this conflict will continue to be very disruptive and it will it will cause supply chains to uh, to become problematic. And that's, again, uh, net negative for risk assets because, uh, you know, the S&P 500 is a proxy for growth on, an, on a nominal GDP. Uh, right. One other facet that I would actually add to this is because we're not talking about this just from a pure economic perspective, but a geopolitical perspective is Russia yes. uh, and other countries like Russia that are uh, non-aligned, if you will. I think that there is the, prob the probability that Russia will move into the uh, Chinese orbit and that will increase the ability just from a geo uh, military perspective 
of that particular uh, orbit to deal well in Asia, to deal well in um, in the Middle East as well. And so you have a uh, you know, a an alignment which is now uh, very much a problem for the United States. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned uh, some of the standards architectures. What about uh, things like Swift and Fedwire and Target too? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways in which this all could could uh, could go ahead. I was thinking to myself, you know, the if we're thinking about the COVID-19 crisis and we're thinking to ourselves about uh, working remotely, I was listening to someone today talking about Crypto 101 uh, and how, you know, we have authentication that's asymmetric uh, from an encryption perspective that allows us to do so many things from our home that we wouldn't be able to, be to do otherwise. You know, I, as let's say, uh, someone who works in healthcare, I could have healthcare records and I could swap them back and forth uh, over the internet uh, with regard to, without any limitations. But yeah. what if a nefarious actor from outside of the United States uh, is able to attack the, the, the grid, if you will, uh, then all of that goes, goes away. There are all sorts of asymmetric uh, geopolitical types of activities that could happen. And, it, yes. and ultimately, it reminds me of what Neil Ferguson was saying when he talks about the new Cold War. He thinks that there's a new Cold War. And he says like, when your back's up against the wall and you're an, an authoritarian regime, you are going to take geopolitical risks. And ultimately, uh, that means uh, armed conflict and, uh, and, and that sort of confrontation. I, I always enjoy, Ed, that you have the ability to always take it up one order of magnitude <laughs> to, talk, to talk about asymmetric encryption and the, the public key infrastructure, which is uh, obviously the basis of things like TSL and SSL for uh, web transactions, but also conceptually the framework uh, that is used for cryptocurrency as well, and something that we'll be hearing more about and will become less an isolated subject that, um, you know, that your kids or your cool nephew talks about at Thanksgiving, and more something that becomes an issue that is integrated into global security, uh, technology, and, and financial infrastructure. Yeah, and to the degree that it's all very integrated, and it's very important, it means that it's something that is a, a target. Uh, for enemies of that particular system. And uh, and so I think that that's something for us to be thinking about. The more and more we move away from the physical world, the more and more the virtual world, uh, the internet world will be a source of, uh, of geopolitical uh, war. Yeah. And also non-party actors, right? When we, when we talk about things like PKI, uh, we, we think about uh, frameworks that are very different from the traditional model that's used to secure things like SWIFT. What you're looking at is open standards architectures. You're looking at public domain software. You're looking at public code audits. This is a very different world. Uh, this is not your, your father's or your grandfather's world, certainly, uh, in thinking about how security uh, is understood and improved and enforced. And and so you know I'm, I'm if I could close it out in a certain way to bring it back to markets and the the here and now yes. you know I continue to be relatively upbeat about the near term in terms of uh, markets and the economy I think that we're on the cusp if we're not already there of what I would call a snapback uh, rally you know creating almost the shortest recession on history the sh the shortest and the sharpest recession on history but. Uh, I think that that's 
going to give way to a much more difficult medium to longer term just because of the effects of the virus and yeah. and how pernicious they've been. But when you overlay that with some of the things that we're talking about here, you see that there are a lot of other uh, outside threats. And when you look at a world in which uh, y- there's a lot of distrust of authority within the West, where there's a lot of income inequality that has built up, people, you know, they, 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 there's a certain instability there that worries me in terms of our ability to uh, continue uh, growing over the long term with these threats uh, staring down our neck. So I'm not as uh, sanguine about the medium to long term. I am a lot more positive about the short term. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought it back there. My favorite story of the day, and it's a short one, and it's one uh, unlike the other issues where I always feel that I'm not nearly smart enough to understand. This one I get instinctively. So so Jamie Dimon was speaking at a conference today, uh, at some sort of a banking conference, and uh, he uttered the phrase, I think JP Morgan is a very valuable company at these prices, and the stock went up 7.9%, right? So it's like this idea that when markets are looking for an excuse to push a stock they like higher, uh, they will find it. Of course, you know, Jamie Dimon's record at uh, JP Morgan speaks for itself. It's an extremely well-managed bank. But really, you know, that statement, uh, this company is very valuable at these prices. Like, I think everyone should just send an email to their boss right now saying, <laughs> I think I'm very valuable at my current salary, and you'll wake up tomorrow and there'll be a 7.9% cash deposit bonus in your account. Probably not going to happen. That's not the way the real world works. But when markets uh, feel uh, optimistic, as you were sort of pointing out in terms of the short-term recovery moving back toward uh, price levels that we saw pre-COVID, that's what you get. Yeah. And how long this is going to go on for us, we don't know. Right. But I think it's going to go on until we uh, we settle into the malaise that is going to happen after the short uh, a snapback that we're having right now. Uh, and it, it, it's just unknowable uh, how long that will take. But I would say that by the end of this summer, uh, you know, August, September time frame, uh, that's when you'll see uh, things a little bit differently. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. JP Morgan closed up 7.1% on the day for whatever it's worth. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'll not say anything more about that, but uh, that tells you all you need to know. Yeah, I really enjoy doing these deep dives with you. This was terrific. Thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.